0: Religious liberty springs forth from the very core of man and ranks first in America's Bill of Rights. Today, that right finds itself in direct conflict with a wide range of human rights, such as the so-called right to reproductive freedom and same-sex unions. What does this mean for us and for the church? Today we'll discuss this emerging problem with our special guest, Helen Alvary, a consultant for the Pontifical Council for the Laity and a law professor at George Mason University. I'm Michael Hernan, Vice President of Advancement at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, and you're watching Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us. Franciscan University presents. I'm Michael Hernan, Vice President of Advancement at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio. Today we'll be discussing the conflict between so called human rights and religious liberty. I'm joined here in our studios with our regular panelists, Dr. Regis Martin, Professor of Systematic Theology here at Franciscan University, Dr. Scott Hahn, Professor of Biblical Theology here at Franciscan University, and today we're joined by special guest Helen Alvarez. Helen, uh, you earned your uh, law degree from uh, Cornell, and you went on and I received a a master's degree in systematic theology from Catholic University. Yes. Uh, You've uh, served the U.S. Bishops' Conference in a number of different capacities, the Office of General Counsel, as well as the Pro-Life Secretariat, uh, you have filed briefs, uh, amicus briefs in the Supreme Court on abortion, euthanasia, and the Establishment Clause. Uh, you have even testified before Congress. You're a regular on TV and radio. Uh, you're a real champion of, of the issues of life and liberty, um, and you're a professor uh, at George Mason University welcome to the program
1: thank you very much
0: it is so great to have you here um you know we really do see a great assault on religious liberty today this is more profound than i think maybe some people fully realize yes um could you help us set the stage by just starting what is the what is the the basic principles how do we start with the understanding of religious liberty here
1: well at the risk of criminally simplifying things um Uh, We understand religious liberty from the guarantees in our First Amendment, right, that the government shall not make a law respecting establishment, and the government also shall not uh, um, abridge our citizens' free exercise. Lots of questions about what that encompasses. At the very least, it means, of course, that people are, as citizens, they're free to believe, they're free to worship, Um, They're free to live their lives, both private and their public lives, Mm -hmm. in accordance with their faith. They're free to organize in accordance with their faith. It also means that the government cannot pass a law or do other things. Uh, It could be uh, an executive order, it could be from any branch of government, the judiciary, um, that favors one religion over another. Um, Some will say also that they can't favor religion over Hmm. non-religion. Also that the government cannot enter into the internal affairs of religions and make decisions. Uh, Some people have (coughs) called this the principle of separation. I find that term often used as a way of making the public square secular versus its intent, which is that the religion shall not run the government and government shall not run religion. and then there's many nuances one could go on after that, but that's the basic lay of the land. But
2: you've identified two key clauses. On the one hand, there's the establishment clause. I don't think we run any risk of that. The other is the free exercise clause. And I think that's, that's really where we see infringement, at least <laughs> the potential for that. And you know, by, rest, by restricting or by reducing religious freedom just to the, the freedom of worship. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, I, I, have, I have seen in the last year or two a subtle but substantial sea change right. in the understanding
3: of religious freedom. Could you just... Wait, but but be, sure. before you do that, uh, come back to the establishment clause. Right. Because I, I think there's a can of worms uh, there. Uh, while most religious people do not desire a theocracy, uh, we don't want the bishops running the civil order. Right. But on the other hand, I, I think there's a creeping sense that secularism is rather establishing itself yes. as a religion, an orthodoxy.
1: Yeah, you know, some people uh, have attempted to um, flesh that out in lawsuits where people will say about a public school, for instance, mm-hmm. you are teaching a particular view of human sexuality or history even yeah. that is so cut off from even common sense attention to the role that religion has played in history, or you are secularizing um, uh, sexuality. You are teaching that the person is just an animal with no spirit right, and right, no mind-body yeah. connection at all. Those get get lost in the courts. The idea oh, um, we are not a country like France where secularité is itself yeah, right. a, a principle of government, but in fact. It has been pointed out, um, the, sort of the preeminent professor of uh, constitutional law in this area, Mike McConnell at Stanford University, that sometimes we forget that we really don't have a secularity principle. Right. That in fact um, religion is n- is in our First Amendment for a reason. That our founders thought that it was a beneficent yeah. um, I- influence upon society. That some have said that both of the clauses together were meant to allow religion to flourish. The non-establishment wasn't to avoid the government um, making religion important at all. It was so that people were not banned from practicing one religion in favor of another, or that the government wasn't extracting tax money from citizens to pay for a minister in another faith. And then the same with the free exercise. But some see that the, the other view of this is not... Uh, that both of the clauses tend toward recognizing the beneficent uh, influence of religion in society, (coughs) but rather that the government shall not establish, meaning keep religion out of the public square, and free exercise is private. And that's where we come back to the question on worship, which is that some people's view that both of these clauses tend toward a naked public square means that free exercise gets reduced to freedom of worship, which people have noted is a tendency that this current... Uh, president is using quite a bit both in domestic and in international right. rhetoric.
2: Yeah, that's as Native Americans were relegated to the reservation it's almost as though practicing conservative religions
3: are yeah. about I them. mean if if you completely privatize faith then it becomes so harmless and eccentric sort of like playing canasta <laughs> well, or golf.
1: Yeah, and, 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 and And frankly why would you need a free exercise clause right, yeah. if what you were protecting is simply the right to sit and believe (laughs) or the right to go into a building or some other place and worship. Now, it's possible there were, you know, worship services that affected third parties, but frankly, at the time the country was founded, most of these worship was taking place in sort of a confined religious space, why would you need the free exercise clause if it were confined to worship? Right. It, it, right. On its logic, right. it right. seems that it <clears throat> was implying that something would happen whereby a person's desire to be religious or to live according to their faith would bump up against right. some right. other social interests or goods.
0: And this was all intended to limit the government and not right. religion,
3: and that's 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 huge.
1: That's the, histo- that's the fight over right. what we've, history we've means. Lost of that
3: I mean if there are admittedly structures of secularity uh, they're not uh, systemic they're not comprehensive and our historical experience is very different from say uh, uh, France right. I mean if there's a wall of separation right. it's right. pretty porous right uh, all, the differences are almost diaphanous yeah. between the two what,
1: what's tricky today in my mind well, many things are but one of them is that We went from a place where it was understood, in fact, you had this. this, some famous early cases in the early colonies and states where the judges said even when they were forcing one citizen to pay taxes for the ministers of another, listen, you benefit from paying taxes to the ministers of another denomination because they are, Um, they are helping people to be good in a way that the law never could enforce. And so religion is a beneficent influence everywhere. Well, now there is a prevailing idea that religion is there to say no, back to the original framework of this show, to human rights, in particular sexual rights. And so what's interesting is that some, like sociologists of religion or theologians or psychologists of religion, are fighting back with a kind of utilitarian argument Mm. that says, oh, but no, religion's very good. If people are religious, they heal from their heart attacks faster. They tend not to get divorced, and so they don't put on the state the cost of, of divorce proceedings. They tend to take care of their kids, and that saves the state money. And I'm not really totally, uh, it's true. It's but I'm not comfortable so with yes. yeah, <laughs> right, yeah. I'm not comfortable. It, it has
3: an insidious intent because you end up instrumentalizing exactly. religion. Right. And, and Jesus didn't say, "I am the custom." Right. He said, "I am that's the right. way, right. the truth, and the life." Yeah. Right. but Well, could
0: we go now to what are some of these attacks? What are these human rights that they are putting in conflict? Right. Uh, what are what are what are we really uh, um, seeing in the culture today that's attacking right. religious liberty?
1: Well, I mean, it, it would be. Uh, unfair if I didn't point out that there's, you know, there is a variety there. There are people who are fearful of new immigrant religions coming in, there are people who just don't understand religion and think uh, religion is by its nature anti-rational. So there's always that, and that comes and goes through the culture. But, but a thing that I've been focusing on, particularly in my work, and part of it's because of my background in pro-life and Christian feminism and human sexuality, and part of it is just because we're really experiencing it right now, is the claim that certain things, which used to be regarded as violations of the good, as violations of dignity, are now being claimed to be rather human rights, and these are things like uh, a right not only to have the easiest possible access to contraception even for single people, but also now to have not only other people pay for it, but even religious institutions pay for it. The right to an abortion, so the right to, to destroy another human life. Uh, the claimed right that two people of the same sex can enter into a status that that society will call marriage, and that religious individuals and institutions have to bow before it.
0: I think that's the key right there, is that the institutions are being forced to bow, because it's one thing for people to be sinful, to, to use their own path, but it's another thing to tell people of faith. Yeah. You must accept this, you must believe
3: this, and sometimes now you must pay for this. You know, the, the examples you cite uh, are so shocking that I'm amazed that we haven't some, somehow instantly mobilized uh, the entire country against these outrages. It's true. Yeah.
1: The, the, I, I like to think of it in the long term, partly because it gives me hope, but I also think there's truth in it. The fact that we are even sitting here today having this conversation, the fact that groups exist, like the National Organization for Marriage, like National Right to Life Committee, like the, the influential campaigns of the Bishops' Conference, etc., Feminists for Life, all of them, um, is itself kind of the miracle. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because what has yeah. been allied That's against good. us right. yeah. is... Uh, the more education people have, the more likely they are to support abortion and now same sex marriage. So you have sort of elite culture. Indoctrination. Th- very right. very much. Mo- well, I think it's, it's partly indoctrination, and it's partly when one feels powerful oneself, one is less mm. inclined to accept, you know, to, to be humble before truths that aren't popular, uh, uh, that yes. would cost you. Um, and part of it is the media is behind it. Part of it is that there's an awful lot of money, an awful lot of money on the other side of these issues. Yeah. And so the fact that we live to tell the story and that we have scholars mm. who are gathering together more than they were, I can tell you, in the 1980s, Yeah.
2: Yeah, it, it, is is, it is good. It's, it's helpful to hear Regis's reminder. It reminds me of what Mark Stein said, that you know, conventional morality is now considered weird. Which is itself mega weird. (laughs) (laughs) Was that a quote? (laughs) (laughs) You know, and and the fact is, you know, unless our generation has been endowed with a sort of sublime and unique wisdom, you know, uh, and yet at the same time, how can we think that way about ourselves without looking at the system and seeing how terribly broken it is right. yes. and then draw the conclusion that maybe conventional morality is not so weird after all.
1: It's it's the classic, you know, lobster in the pot that's warm right. and then it ca- right. when I teach my students about family law, I say to them, I know this seems positively prehistoric to you. But mm. things in the 1960s and 70s were different. And then to even go through the historic changes and show them the world you are living in now, legally speaking, and somewhat culturally, bears no resemblance right. to right. family law of that right. era. And John Paul II said the same thing in Evangelium Vitae. He said, yeah. we're talking about abortion, it used to be a crime, now it is a first-level right. right. How right. did this happen? It's uh, right.
3: it's, it's, yeah, It's I mean, yes. Chesterton has that great quip about we don't know what we're doing because we don't know what we're undoing. And there is that you, connection. <laughs> I mean, as you move towards a post-Christian <laughs> world, you discover it becomes more and more post-human. I mean, that connection, I I think, has to be drawn more and more.
2: You just pinpointed something that I believe is really significant, though. When when Sibelius and the HHS mandate came out and all the discussion and controversy swirled, you know, of course, the strategy was to make it all about contraception, even though some of the contraceptive means were clearly abortifacient. Mm But I think, you know, people say, well, you know, if you're going to link contraception with the right to an abortion and then the right to have that actually paid for, that's just a slippery slip argument, which is a logical fallacy. And yet it's a sociological inevitability.
1: Right, and and frankly, logically speaking, if you look at the basis for making contraception recommended, it's that it ends on intended pregnancies. No, That's it doesn't. Yeah. Abortion right. really is the final solution on that. That's right.
0: That's right. That's yeah. right. And, and I, I have uh, pages upon pages of the new attacks that have come out in the last couple of years. The U.S. Bishops' Conference have established a new committee just on religious liberty. This is obviously a huge, huge threat for us right now. There's so much at stake. Um, I really want us to continue this conversation and um, go deeper into how we got here. How did we get to the current crisis? You're watching Francisco University Presents. Stay with us.
4: So the problem with the HHS mandate is that it involves me as a Catholic personally in supporting this evil, something that I view as fundamentally wrong, and that's just something I can't stand for. I can't stand to be supporting contraception and supporting abortions, things that I know are evil. My name is Michael Villanueva. I'm majoring in philosophy and theology. Last semester, I had sacraments with Dr. Hahn, and I'll tell you right now, it was the best class of my entire life. At Every class, I'm just knocked out of my chair. It hits me like a ton of bricks. The beauty of the truth that he's speaking to us. Something so simple, but so beautiful and so profound and so powerful. Franciscan University is academically excellent and passionately Catholic.
0: Today we're discussing religious liberty with professor, uh, advocate, uh, Helen Alvare. Um, Helen, in the last segment, I think we we laid out a very clear picture of the attacks on religious liberty. Um, help us see how we got to this place. How do we get to a place where religious liberty is now somehow in conflict with so-called reproductive rights and other things like
1: that? Right. Um, there's a couple moving parts, but I'd be anxious to hear other people's view. I think. Part of it is because it seems to me that, and this has theological roots too, freeing the human person from their body, from the implications of complementarity, male-female commitment, procreation, which occurred through a combination of technological developments from the pill on, intertwined with social developments that were then fueled by the law which said First, contraception was a right of married persons, then single persons, then abortion was a right, then comes new reproductive technologies, no-fault divorce, Mm -hmm. uh, the normalization of cohabitation, and this is all through an interaction of law and culture, finally to the point where the Supreme Court says in the Casey decision in 1992, an abortion decision, that at the heart of constitutional liberty an unwritten part it's not in the text is the right to create your own universe and no. identity and sense of meaning right, right. so once you go there mm. then you're at the you know you're you're it's the recapitulation of original sin right you're right. creating your and own world <laughs> but but human sexuality the body right. seem right. to be at the heart of this mm. well once that happens then who is the chief naysayer to that world view it does end up being the Roman Catholic Church and then the other moving part here is that the church would say it but then maybe didn't engage deeply particularly on the questions of Uh, contraception, new reproductive technologies, divorce. It was always there. It was in some places in the church. It was in some schools. But there was also a big fight over it in the church, and then an assault from outside. And so the combination of of Americans at this time, Catholic and otherwise, who are uncatechized on this, with the rapid development of the law with and then the use of the magic language used in the civil rights debate of of essential identity human rights non-discrimination and equality woof you get hit with those words the
2: perfect storm yeah, yeah, right. It's hard to come legal, back.
1: All of that. That's right.
2: Yeah. yeah, I mean, you're right at one level in tracing it back to original sin in the garden, you <laughs> know, because it's been with us. But it, it always works, right? You <laughs> know, right. But I mean, with we do we do face a constitutional crisis. I mean, this is where I will go, but we don't have the time on the show to really develop it. I, you know, as a Protestant, I loved Scripture, but I discovered that Scripture alone was not enough to unite evangelical Christians. You know, forty two thousand denominations mm-hmm. later. still counting you know and if that's true for an inspired document how much truer is it for an uninspired document like the Constitution Mm -hmm. to try to base everything exclusively on that document that isn't inspired without a magisterium or a tradition you know we have the Constitution and we have to work with what we've been given we have to be grateful and appreciative and active we have to be vigilant but we also have to be realistic I think because you know Scripture is my thing, and you know, Jeremiah is one of my favorites. We, we named one of our sons after the prophet. And one scholar pointed out that what bugged Jeremiah the most was not that the Jews were in exile, but that they didn't know it. You know, they didn't know they were in yeah. exile. They were yeah. so comfortable in Babylon right. that Jeremiah had to issue these jeremiads to right. say, right. look, you're not home, you know. Right. You've got to bloom where you're planted. You've got to plant the gardens. You've got, to build the, you know, you've got to build your houses and pray for the cities that the Lord has driven you to. But don't get too comfortable, right. you know. That,
3: that's uh, wonderfully reminiscent of something that Albert J. Nock uh, once famously said. He was an American educator from the last century. He said, how do we know uh, when a society has fallen into a dark age? And the answer is when the lights go out, but nobody notices. <laughs> uh, we, we live yeah, in the yeah. midst of darkness, but the church, right. I, I think, represents this great beacon of light I mean, whose incandescence right. shines everywhere. And I think Pope Paul was a voice of conscience, of clarity, of courage?
1: And of prophecy. Oh, I man. was giving a talk yeah. about this uh, not too long ago at a large Catholic law school, and I, I pointed out that in 1968 in Humana Vitae, he says, you know, when you have contraception, women are going to get objectified, there's going to be a lot more promiscuity, and the government is going to try to impose <laughs> uh, this tool right. as a social policy tool right. on the population. And then two years later, The federal government dreams up Title X, which is now distributing hundreds of millions of dollars to contraception, targeting at poor people mostly, Um, and through the phenomenon of something that we call risk compensation, people do more of something when they think technology covers the risk, we now have more of all the problems that contraception was supposed to correct. But they, they simply refuse to see that this wasn't the answer. And so they're thinking, if we could just co-opt the Catholic Church, the lead opponent of this, right. if we could just force them to bow on this, then even though everything that we were supposed to fix has gotten worse, we, somehow that will change. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. We yeah. just have to get the Church to kneel.
2: To invoke Chesterton one last time, you know we don't need a church that's right when the culture is right. We need a church that's right when the culture is wrong, right, you know, yeah. but that's why the church ought to buckle up and prepare for persecution right, and yeah. hardships and that sort Cheerfully. of thing. Cheerfully, you know, yeah. I mean, right. it's, yeah. I mean, sure. really,
1: I'm finding through this struggle over the contraceptive mandate, an enormous amount of solidarity. Uh, the women's letter that myself and a friend, Kim Daniels, started went from a, f- a few dozen names to tens of thousands in a matter of And it weeks. started
2: at the stove, I understand. It
1: <laughs> and, I, and of all things, I was cooking chicken soup. I mean, how American is that's that? Right. And it chicken occurred to pot. me <laughs> that it was really sad that people did Yeah, well, it's chicken soup for
3: the soul, <laughs> soul of Indeed. America. Oh, that's, right. And, that's right. And and, and it's just that. the
1: solidarity between yeah. the women on this, the, the Facebook page, the You Go Sister, the bravas that are being exchanged <laughs> over women who said, I didn't feel I had a voice. And I'm so excited oh, yes. yeah. to put my name on something public and to know that I have women. we have every state and like most U.S. You're um, going to have um, hundreds. Of
2: thousands of
3: signatures before so. the day is done. But it, it, so. it's so curious if you listen to NPR and follow conventional media. The caricature is that the bishops have shot themselves uh, uh, in their foot because they are now alienating women yeah. by insisting. Yeah. That was a on
1: deliberate this. political campaign. Oh, and and it, was, the, it was a war on women. Is it was there there a media really st-
3: <laughs> It was a media strategy too.
2: Yeah. Yeah. How deliberately they wouldn't bring cameras to events where Catholic women were speaking. What's the website for that letter, by the way?
1: Uh, women Speak. For themselves. One word. Women speak for themselves. (laughs) And (laughs) then there's a little YouTube offshoot called We Speak for Ourselves, where women are going and making videos of themselves speaking about the topic and throwing YouTubes up on it. (laughs) Oh, great. Yes, this question of the war on women, very carefully orchestrated during a political season, and then followed up by uh, a bill regarding violence against women that was de- that was designed to have things in it that m- that they knew would be problematic for the same people who supported religious freedom, and and yet when you explain it simplistically to the public, they're like. Oh, you're, you could take away our contraception and let us be beat up. What kind of people are you when <laughs> yeah. absolutely no truth right. in the fact.
2: Well, you, you've shown us that it is not a war against women. But what's so unique is how it's emerging as a kind of, uni- it's, a, it's a civil war within a gender because it's women warring against women.
1: You know what? It's Planned Parenthood and its allies it really warring is. against the average woman. I, I know the so word warring oh. is very... Yeah. I don't usually it, like yeah. to use it, but, yeah. but really, the average woman does not want to do what Planned Parenthood thinks is good for them, which is yeah. a new term that will surprise you. Non-relationship sex, if that's what it takes to express your identity. Wow. Um, that's, yeah. that's the term for it oh. now in sociology. Um, Seeking self-gratification, seeking to express your identity, seeking your own advancement, um, the That's, average this woman is, this is does the not true really want that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah, and 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 the, and the sociological studies show it.
3: Well, it's yeah. a direct, it's a direct frontal assault upon the meaning of the human person. Right. To be yeah. is to be in relation. Right. Yeah. Sex is relational. Yeah. That's right. I mean, otherwise, yeah. it's called masturbation.
0: Yes.
1: Yeah.
3: And, and and sex is to the core. Our sexuality is to the core of who we are. As is
0: religious liberty. Right. I mean, it, it is the fundamental questions that we ask ourselves about purpose,
3: meaning, and our eternal destiny. That's right. And they're and they're ripping. The them asunder. It, it is it's particularly disheartening that so many of the architects of this war are themselves Catholic, well, ex Catholics, <laughs> which is the largest religious group in this country.
1: Right. I, I do Catholics. want to assure you. Second to though, the Catholics. Yeah. yeah. Yes. yeah right. That yes. the, the, you know, there are a ton of Catholic women and this, the Women Speak For Themselves letter, but I also met them as I traveled around the U.S. They're there. Yeah. So they've been busy doing a lot of things. They're raising kids, right. they're raising kids and working. They're owning small businesses. They're, they're, that's the great thing about this letter is I saw law women professors. of every walk of life. They're law professors, they're everything. They're, they're out there, they have been formed. We, I'm, you know, it's it's too grand for me to say, gee, I really wanna mobilize them and give them a voice, but I do yes. because they are a sign of hope. Yeah. And, and, and it is not, when the other side says, this is what sex is and we say, no, it's not, we are not saying, what we really want is a 1950s chick standing at the pot right, right. Uh, in the kitchen uh, with no other role permitted in her in life. That's the caricature they paint of us. That's right, we that's want right. the truly free, truly reasonable woman, but it turns out she wants relationship. Right. She wants stability. Most women want marriage and children. Not all, but most. But that is not to paint an antique or limiting character right. of women. It, there is freedom in that, and women know it.
0: Yeah, 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 the yeah. dignity and the beauty of woman needs to come forth in a whole new way and you've talked about theology of the body so much. I mean this is this is an argument as much about religious liberty as it about the dignity uh, of woman uh, right. too. And, that's and
1: they that. are trying to tell women that the church stands against freedom. Right. And John Paul II and Benedict are saying metaphorically speaking, at the top of their lungs, it's just the opposite. And that has, when it gets to women, they really like it.
0: Yeah. Do you think this battle, uh, you would mentioned this before, is, is particularly against the Catholic Church? Do you believe that it wants to try to silence uh, the Catholic Church in this?
1: No, uh, several things. I, I cannot believe that uh, a government that knows where the Church stands on this and knows it's almost alone, particularly on the question of of, of human sexuality, contraception, etc., cetera, that uh, refused to include the church in the dialogue when it was setting up the rules, that was uh, uh, petitioned by hundreds of thousands of Catholic individuals and organizations to do something else, that basically when it was asked to negotiate told the bishops, what you want is off the table, but we'll do this. I can't believe there isn't some, at least recklessness, if there's not knowing opposition right. to the Church in this. I think it would be naïve to say otherwise.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah
2: It's, it's an overconfident recklessness, yeah. And I think it's a, it's a perception largely exaggerated by the media that the Church is so divided on this issue. Right. You know, I don't usually agree with Dick Morris on things, but when he, <laughs> he pointed out that, you know, it wasn't like the, the President, the, the administration was just kind of inadvertently backing into a battle with the bishops over this religious freedom issue they were really shifting the, f- the focus from abortion to contraception with a strategy to make it all about contraception when it never really was
3: so, That's right. That's and
1: right. I just I I I think there's too much knowledge in advance yeah. before they made a rule that told the church to do what right. was against its conscience to suggest that they didn't know they yeah. were And the,
3: the, the strategy I, I think is transparently cynical uh, Obama and the Democrats they can't win without the Catholics but If Catholics are authentic, they can't win. So they have to emasculate the Church, strip the Church of any credibility. Uh, And if you do that, then you can easily marginalize genuine uh, Catholics. And, and the ones that are left are secularized, right. like like that that crazy woman in Wisconsin who circulated this letter to try to get liberal and nominal Catholics to walk out of their church. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, time, it's time to have real truth in advertising. I mean, it, it, it's just preposterous. I mean, I've been trying for years to get liberals and nominal Catholics to leave the church, and <laughs> I, I welcome this, uh, this <laughs> stratagem. But really, she wants to nuke the church, dismantle and destroy Catholic Christianity, because that's the impediment. I mean, she's the 800-pound gorilla in the room that, that nobody wants to identify. I mean, yeah. nobody wants to be seen as being openly, blatantly anti-Catholic, yeah. and I think but that really is uh, the tactic.
0: Yeah, And I think when, when we look at this issue, uh, they're trying to silence the church, and we will not be silent. Uh, in the next segment, let's look at where we can go from here. What, what are some of the things we can do? Uh, to defend religious liberty. Thank you for watching, Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us.
4: The thing that has struck me the most about the HHS mandate is that there's a sense that people just don't care. They're just going to let this slide by, and I think the government and the people who are behind this are vastly mistaken, especially in our young people, especially in young Catholics who are really on fire for their faith. They understand what's being attacked uh, through this mandate and they understand that who they are as Catholics is being challenged and honestly, they're not afraid to take up the role, take up the role of a martyr and say, we're not gonna stand for this. We're going to sacrifice for it because we know what we deserve. We know what is ours as being Catholic.
0: Explore the treasures of your Catholic heritage on a Franciscan University pilgrimage. Led by inspiring spiritual directors, you'll walk in the footsteps of saints and martyrs in the Holy Land, Poland, France, and Italy, and you'll deepen your love for Jesus Christ through daily Mass, confession, prayer, and the joy of Christian fellowship. Let Franciscan University lead you on a pilgrimage of faith. Find out more at franciscan.edu slash pilgrimages. Thank you for joining us here at Franciscan University Presents. Uh, This entire program is taped right here in our communication arts studio in Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio. Our students are operating the cameras and the equipment, our regular panelists, uh, Regis and Scott, um, are members of our theology department, Uh, but today we are discussing uh, religious liberty. Uh, We've painted a picture of the insidious nature uh, of this attacks on religious liberty. We have talked about kind of where this crisis has come from. Uh, but now let's, let's look forward. Where, where can we go from here? What can we do uh, in this battle?
1: Uh, there, there's a couple of things. And I keep like uh, trying to point to signs of hope. <laughs> um, yes, uh, several things. One, in the empirical literature about human sexuality, in the qualitative interviews with emerging adults in quantitative literature, both in sociology, psychology, economics, political science, there's emerging a picture of chaos and unhappiness Mm. and, and poverty and intergenerational failure, you know, the next generation doing worse than the ones before them, as a consequence of the chaos of understanding of human sexuality. And there's another phenomenon going on that's been pointed out in a Charles Murray book. Kay Heimowitz wrote about it that the absence of family life and all that goes with it mm-hmm. is, uh, is, is seeming to help, or, or not help, but to hurt the poor by stagnating them <laughs> in an um, in a, in a economically and educationally deprived situation. And the rich, who go to college and get good jobs, are not suffering this they are not having children premaritally they are not cohabiting as much they are not getting Mm. abortions they are getting married and they are not divorcing Mm. whereas the Uh. the lower middle class and the very poor economically are suffering all of these there's this understanding that finally it took just the an, an economic armageddon for the poor to understand this uh, in our culture for politicians to understand it and for the wider culture. And this is a bit of a wake-up call, I think. It's, I think it's happening. This research has been yeah. going on from the 90s to the present, mostly. And so the understanding that, empirically speaking, mm-hmm. we shouldn't go on this way, Thanks. and how can these things that are called human rights or even promoted in the name of freedom and equality actually be such if they are leading to, in the term that sometimes is used by economists, is the immiseration. There's mm-hmm. <laughs> the word misery wow. in there oh of women. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And so there is, maybe we're reaching a limit of sorts there in yeah. terms of how poorly we understand the phenomena of sex, marriage, and family. And maybe women in particular are the canary in the coal mine. Everything that was done in the name of advancing them has ended up putting them in a situation where they're the ones who are experiencing sort of the greatest depression after uncommitted sex. They're the ones getting pregnant and either having the abortion with the post-abortion distress or bearing the children and raising them alone. Uh, The number one marker of poverty, right, is is being a single mom. So, Maybe we're reaching a limit point on this.
0: So the data
3: is on our side that's showing it's
1: the moved unhappiness. moved in that direction. Well, it,
3: I mean, it, it is a kind of crossroads, but that leaves open the option of of, of despair, an invitation <laughs> yeah, to Yeah, I suicide. forgot about that. Right. We can't leave Thanks the for
2: Hypothesis.
1: Right, but right. Is,
2: You're right in seeing <laughs> the signs of hope, but we have to kind of dig the tunnel from both, both sides because yes. empirical research is never enough. No, I you don't. know, uh, what Paul tells the Ephesians about deceitful desire and the capacity of our, our disordered desires to blind us to the higher truths that are so inconvenient right, and, and, and painful. We have to dig it from the side of the moral and the spiritual awakening as well. I mean, even if we're not talking about it in the public square, we have to be devoting ourselves to a new evangelization in so many different ways at so many different levels, including empirical research, though, and bringing forth the fact that this really is something that Planned Parenthood didn't just accidentally do. It was a—it right. was really a campaign launched from a long
3: time but, but ago. But Helen, you do have a point. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I, I think it was John Kenneth Galbraith, of all people, who said that the enemy of myth is circumstance. Hmm. And circumstance is bringing down the myth that hmm. sex is just about pleasure, right. you know, private pleasure. It's self-expression it's or
1: identity right. formation. It's really whatever. about babies,
3: and, and right. people are finding that out. Right. And that's
2: good news. The problem is contraception remains, right. and that's yeah. of what you know that's what always creates the possibility for women to feel like that unless I I will not have this social life you know
1: yeah. well I, well part of it we do have to think and I know I'm the the pedantic lawyer on this but we do have to think that because feminism made abortion and contraception and then abortion the sine qua non of women's equality the law too has to stop saying stupid things you know I don't think the law can fix yeah. everything yeah. but yeah. if it would stop saying stupid things yeah. like Contraception and abortion equals women's equality. On the Roe versus Wade anniversary of the, this past January, you know, President Obama said, "I believe in abortion because I want little girls to have the same opportunities as little boys." Ah, you know, that's if unless we have them stop saying stupid things, yeah. and then do some smart things, which is, hey, feminists, you totally forgot about the woman right. who would like to have children and also would like to do some work in the public square, wants to contribute economically, right. intellectually, right. politically to the world. So how about some accommodation right. of the woman who would, would, and for the majority, would like to be a mom, would like to do something part-time, full-time yeah. at some point, cycle through a career? The law hasn't really assisted. All we've got is abortion and contraception. Did, did Obama right. Right. really
3: say that? Because yeah. that yeah. disconnect is so profound it's that, that it suggests what Aristotle called moral idiocy. I mean, people <laughs> like that need to be in prison. Uh, I mean, how can death enhance life? Yeah. yeah, there is yeah. no more room for That's purity right. or satire
2: right. when statements yeah. like that are made by executive leaders. Yeah, yeah
0: when we're we're looking at, this, I have a good friend in, in Washington, a politician who often talks about that politics is downstream of the culture. They went after the culture first, I think, and then they brought in the laws and the politics and the mechanics to right. enliven it. Is there a way for us to kind of do a, a cultural jujitsu? You know, to, this to take this is where care. I go back
1: to what Scott right. just said about the, you know, I. Uh, in my lifetime, which is now getting a bit longer, um, I don't think, I've been through a lifetime of many different popes and I've been in different cities with different bishops. The signs of the times in terms of the brilliance and world engaging talents of, of our popes, yes. Um, the fact that that they are some of the only global citizens who are respected is not really having vested interest, right? They don't have yeah. uh, a financial stake in this these are this is wonderful and we do have some generations of young people who while they're exposed to all this stuff in the culture have had a steady and clear and i might add very you know glitzy cool presentation (laughs) of teaching on this world i've been to several world youth days with my kids and with other there we 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 know we feel outmanned or out <laughs> on any given day in right. any given set of newspapers and on the web, but the fact is that we really have had some, some it's no coincidence that The Theology of the Body came to us when it did, yes, or yes. that Benedict is as awesome as he is theologically about freedom, and progress, and all these words uh, that everybody wants to talk about. So that evangelization, I'm I'm completely with him. I'm working on sort of working on things in the academy and trying to bring empirical data to to enlighten laws. And then I need, you know, we all need the brilliant theologians and preachers to express what the human heart is dying to hear, and we have the confidence to know what that is. You know,
2: Pope Paul VI was prophetic, as you pointed out earlier, in linking contraception with abortion, euthanasia, and all of the rest. It's more than a legal coincidence that the right to privacy invoked in Roe v. Wade was actually created in Griswold versus Connecticut, which dealt with contraception. Exactly. (laughs) but I do still see a disconnect when it comes to the millennial generation. I mean, unless they're really devoting themselves to the teaching of the church and to the theology of the I'm body. I'm not disagreeing with you that. Know, this yeah. is where prayer and fasting, That's but right. a, whole new, uh, a whole new commitment to educating Catholic young people so that they can see that connection. Right. Because, I mean, you don't want to wait until
0: after they've had their first abortion right. or until they just... You don't feel. even want to
1: wait till they're in fifth grade. For
0: That's right. That's I right. mean, Well, they need to know yeah. the differences between men and women today that they didn't know before. Right. Uh, there, there's things
3: of life, of family, of the, the sanctity of, of, of the whole community even. But, that, I mean, you're, you're the woman here. Uh, don't women feel this yep. uh, in their... <laughs> in their body, in their being. I mean, when they're treated shabbily, when yes. they're objectified, instrumentalized, uh, treated as things, pleasure yes. uh, units. I mean, don't don't they feel a certain violation? And mm-hmm. doesn't that sort of isn't that a teachable moment that sex
1: and love and life are together of a piece? They're, yes, if they had the moral and emotional and spiritual words for it or framework for it, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. Scott was referring mm-hmm. to earlier. You know, they're, they're, they're in a foreign land, but they're not quite sure. Mm-hmm. Um, you, if you're looking at women at universities, they go to university health centers who will tell them everything about not smoking, but nothing about why they feel so lousy <laughs> after uh, they have a so-called boyfriend who only really sees them on Friday nights between 10 and four in the morning. Um, that there are They feel this, but they need the words and the framework to express it. Theologically, scientifically, um, psychologically, and and frankly, having now watched my children and what they know and do and watch and see on the Internet, um, under my supervision, but to my amazement, the amount of teaching that goes on there. The, we need to be in dialogue with young people about, gee, how would you put a theme on the internet that could get parodied and and liked and commented upon and slapped up on someone's Facebook page? They re- they're learning a lot from it. Sometimes they're learning wonderful things. Right. I've seen and they them. will lead
0: us in that way. And too, and
1: but we have the frameworks, we have the wisdom, we have the time. We like like Benedict, right? He's got the whole Western canon in his head. Yeah, We've right. got pieces okay. of that. Right. We share with what it is they know about how to teach one another. We love them first. We 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 see this technology as itself, you know, a neutral thing which can be used for bad or good. But but they're learning a lot there. It has to be really young it has to be in those venues and it can be explicitly evangelical or it can be kind of just a great theme in a secular in a secular package
0: so we've got prayer and fasting we've got you know the culture Uh, we've got family life uh, that we can go after but what about uh, in in politics when we're looking uh, forward at the election what should a catholic look forward to in their selection of candidates well obviously non-endorsement yeah (laughs) obviously
1: yeah and i i don't even I, i hate that whole religion next to a party or a particular candidate, because as I like to joke with people, Jesus Christ isn't running this year. (laughs) And so, you know, it leaves me in a bind. Um, But... I think, you know, if people really wanted to prepare themselves, obviously state Catholic conferences, U.S. conferences have descriptions of our, what we care about as Catholics, our main priorities. Be Catholic first, don't be partisan, yeah, you know, yeah. really look at the issues. Obviously, we know that some issues are more stark than others, that life and death religious freedom rank right up there. That's right. Um, I think, frankly, if someone sat down and did a reading of Deus Caritas Est, mm. yeah, get, they yeah. would have it. And they would know what it is they were looking for in a human being and in a political agenda. Well,
3: and also Spe of the, the journey through hope. Yeah, Yeah. the sign, the star of hope is our mother.
2: I'm glad you said that too, because being fully Catholic is the key to having a clear conscience when you vote. You know, and we have to have a memory. We have to recognize that the Republican party gave us Blackmun, Nixon's appointee, who gave us Roe v. Wade, and that the Rockefeller Republicans have long been favor of, you know, pro-abortion and this sort of thing. So we've got to kind of you know, hold not too tightly to these sort of political allegiances and mm-hmm. really be Catholic Christians first. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I think we have to get involved. Yes. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah, yeah. Which really people have are afraid of, of politics. It just
1: smells bad bad to a lot of people and the attack machines against politicians
2: jump all over and I would say if it smells bad now just
3: wait until after you've not gotten involved that's
1: right (laughs) right
0: we
3: gotta get our hands dirty with that not just voting yeah we you find yourself living in the middle of a toxic dump yeah right that's right then it's too late
0: that's right that's right
2: so first of all I want to say thank you for doing this second of all what steps uh, can we take you know in the build-up to the election can you think of anything practical
1: Well, I do think if people can become involved in particular elections for candidates, they really feel good about supporting, right? They can support with a clear conscience. It's fun. It's easy. Get your kids involved. They like it, too. Uh, You have to talk to your friends. Use the Internet to talk to your friends. Put out information that people don't know. Uh, People really don't realize a lot of things that are very important to Catholics because they're not highlighted at that moment before an election. Use every communications channel available. And
2: get your wives, daughters, and sisters to sign Women Speak for Themselves. Indeed.
0: (laughs) I want to keep this going. This is exciting. Uh, In our final segment, we'll talk about uh, our our wrap-up, our concluding points. You're watching Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us.
2: We should be equipped, as St. Peter says, to give a reason, give an account for the faith that is is within us. So we need now, I think, to answer this call of Pope Paul and then reiterated by Pope Benedict, to uh, respond to this urgent crisis of the clash between the culture of life and the culture of death.
4: My name is Kelly Butler and I'm a Communication Arts major. I took independent digital filmmaking. Definitely intense. Many all-nighters in the editing lab getting things done. Pope John Paul II has a quote, Do not be afraid to go out into the streets and into public places to preach Christ like the first apostles. That's what we're called to as Catholics and as Christians. You have that responsibility that every work you create should reflect Christ. Franciscan University is academically excellent and passionately Catholic.
3: We've
0: come to our final segment on Franciscan University Presents. We've been discussing religious liberty with professor, author, and advocate Helen Alvare. Uh, Regis, could you start us off today with uh, some of your uh, final thoughts?
3: Yeah, uh, in the last uh, moment or two we were casting about for uh, ways uh, that might help improve the shape of uh, of the public life. Uh, You know, Edmund Burke says that a nation to be loved must be lovely. Well, how can we make this nation, this people, more lovely. And I I think we touched on prayer and politics. uh, And and prayer, of course, is indispensable. And I always think of Pascal uh, in this uh, connection. He said, God instituted prayer so as to confer upon his creatures the dignity of becoming a cause. We literally cause things to happen mm. when we pray, when we invoke God and harness the power of the Holy Spirit. You better stop me because I'm starting to sound charismatic. <laughs> but then there's politics. I mean, you no know, politics is, is not ignoble. It's, it's, it's essential. It, it helps to shape the culture and change uh, the zeitgeist. Uh, so without politics, we're, 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 we're a ship that's uh, sinking at, at sea. But I would, I would mention pedagogy. I mean, talking mm-hmm. to people. Uh, you, you were giving us that phenomenon called hooking up. You know, the guy who spends time with his girl between 10 and 2 a.m. on a Saturday morning, and that's it. Then discards her like, uh, uh, you know, an empty cigarette box. How do we reach her? You know, wisdom is oftentimes learned through agony, and this is a kind of anguish of, of soul. I'm, I was made for more than this. She needs a vocabulary, a framework, a a scheme to fit her her angst into. And uh, I think that's what the church can provide, you know, a working vocabulary to tell her that, you know, the human heart was made for glory, for God, uh, and uh, you're not getting it. You know, Eliot says, the only wisdom we can hope to acquire is the wisdom of humility. Humility is endless. And when you are reduced uh, uh, to helplessness, uh, you can then turn to wisdom. I mean, the wisdom who is the Word, the Word made flesh. I think finally the solution is is christ we've got to somehow communicate christ to these people not as an abstraction but as a living reality and the only book they're going to read is your behavior your life you've got to show them christ that you care and that you're not here to exploit them but to somehow enshrine them as as the person they are the future belongs to people who show up. That's that's the only way you're going to show up if you've got something to live for, something, uh, you know, a dream that you can found your life upon. Ah, Thank you, thank you. Scott.
2: Building on that, uh, prayer, but I would also say fasting. I remember talking to (laughs) Ralph Martin about what it took in Nicaragua to overthrow the regime that was so oppressive to the Catholic Church, and it was a great deal of fasting. Mm. People who were so... uh, so hopeful that they they also needed a sign. They needed to pray and to fast and to beg God for extra help that they never thought they would need as much as they do. At the same time, I would say political action, but family life, uh, and, and conjoining these two. Uh, as you mentioned uh, in one of the previous segments, getting your kids involved. We found out, much to my surprise, they really enjoy canvassing the neighborhood. <laughs> yeah. you know, they yeah. really enjoy yeah. finding out that there are local candidates running for Congress in our district that they can meet and get to know and support and get their friends on board with. You know, I would also say the new evangelization. Throwing ourselves behind what our leaders are calling for in the Catholic family, in the church. Uh, And the theology of the body in particular is being one of the most important means by which that can be done. There are lots of versions of the theology of the body. Pick up whatever it is that speaks to your mind and heart and to your kids as well. And learn, study, teach, share. You know, purchase not just a copy of a book but two or three extras, you know. And I would also thank you for, you know, advancing all three of these things in, in raising the family that you're raising and in being involved at George Mason Law School, and also the prayer and the apostolic work that you're doing, not just on EWTN, but at Georgetown and all these other places. You go girl, keep yeah, it up, yeah, you know? <laughs> That's right, that's right. That's
4: right. Uh,
1: and Helen. I, I think I'd just make two points, one on religious liberty and one I would call religious liberty for what, right? Hmm. So. The um, public is very much inclined, I think, to understand religious liberty too much as they understand other rights, right? Which is a thing I take for myself. And we need, even in our struggle for religious liberty at this time, which is a very crucial time, not to see it as one thing among other things. It's rather a fundamental aspect of the human person to need to know ultimate meaning Mm. and to need to live as if this ultimate meaning exists and is important and is worth my devoting my life to. So we need to frame religious freedom in a way that people understand that it's for everybody to be pursuing uh, the meaning of life to be, to be searching the way God built us to search for ultimate things, not as a right for me, mm-hmm. okay? And, and they need to understand that this is something that not only benefits everybody, but benefits the community. And this, I think, is the religious freedom for what point? Um, one of my good friends at the bishops' conference, he's in the pro-life office, Richard Durflinger and I were talking, and he said, you know, it didn't work for the Mormons in the 19th century to say, I deserve religious freedom for right. polygamy. And and if the public thinks that what we're asking for is religious freedom for, I don't know, instigating a war on women, (laughs) then they're gonna go, oh, I'm sorry that you can't have that. (laughs) So we need to help them understand that our religious freedom is actually for the human person, right? Uh. It is, and in particular in the debate that's been going on this year about the question of contraception and, and whether or not we welcome children and what the role of women is and so forth, we really do need, I don't think we can just get away with saying religious freedom and wave that flag and then win. I do think that even though it has been said politically that to characterize this as anything but give us our religious freedom is a loser, at some point we are going to have to say religious freedom for being at least an alternate or dissenting voice in the public square that says we have evidence we have lives of witness to show you, we have a theological, we have an emotional, psychological, spiritual evidence and framework for you, and it's beautiful. Oh. I just think you have to say both things.
0: Yes. yes, that's beautiful, that's beautiful. Helen, thank you for coming to be on the show, traveling all the way to Steubenville. Thanks for speaking with our students here. Uh, you are an articulate and passionate uh, champion for life, uh, for the free faith, for family. Um, I actually feel sorry sometimes for those who you probably oppose. Uh, <laughs> I'm glad you're on our side. Good. Thanks
1: for that. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: If you've enjoyed our conversation, if you want a little bit more, we have a a free handout for you today, an article uh, by, uh, interview actually, of of Helen in defense of life, love, and freedom. It is a great article that you'll want to read. This is available free to you, um, available for download on faithandreason.com or just by contacting us. Uh, This is one of those topics that um, our Holy Father uh, has been speaking about when our our bishops were at their ad limina visit in Rome and said it's imperative. Uh, that we get out and get engaged. Cardinal Dolan has been speaking about there has never been a greater threat. Become informed. Engage yourself in deep, deep prayer. Your families. My family is saying, uh, novenas, until the election. Get involved in praying uh, for this. This is serious. Um, Thank you for watching Franciscan University Presents. This show comes from the heart of the University. Come and join us here on campus to study or through distance education. Join us at conferences. Come to our our website faithandreason.com. There are more things from Helen on there, from Scott and Regis and others. Uh, This is an exciting time in our lives. We must dedicate ourselves to prayer. So thank you so much for watching Franciscan University Presents. Join us next time as we continue the discussion. Uh, May the Lord God bless you and keep you until then. To download the free handout on today's topic, go to faithandreason.com. Email your request for the handout to presents at franciscan.edu. At faithandreason.com, you can also purchase past episodes of Franciscan University Presents or request today's free handout and purchase past programs by calling 888 333 0381. That's 888 888- 333-0381 or call 740-283-6357.